chapter 40, verse 22, and we're definitely going to be hitting a fair amount of Isaiah as we study the attributes of God. Isaiah is pretty, uh, pretty thorough on those things. But Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, it says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. So what's the, what's the picture we see here? How are the inhabitants of the earth viewed in comparison to God? Oh, like grasshoppers. Yeah, like grasshoppers. What's, what's, the, what's the point of that? Why is, why is that the analogy? Is it because we're green and have long hind legs? Or? Well, I think just part of the picture would be to show the smallness mm-hmm. of who we are in comparison to God. Maybe even, and I don't want to say insignificant, but you know, you did not something you notice it. That right. Maybe right. And stuff. That, that actually was the word I was thinking. No. Was, was <laughs> insignificant. I compared to God, we're insignificant. I mean, grasshoppers. I mean, not that grasshoppers are completely insignificant, but I mean, comparatively speaking, grasshoppers are pretty insignificant creatures. So. Um, and I think that's exactly what the idea is that's, that's trying to be conveyed here in Isaiah, is that, that we're really insignificant compared to God. So we talk about um, God being transcendent. He's above it all. He's different. He's separate from his creation. Um, one thing that, I mean, it, that it's... it's that, People often talk about the, the creature-creator distinction. It's we're, we're, we are er, all that we are, and everything that we see is a completely different order of being from who God is. God is just really nothing like us. Um, just a, a little ways over Isaiah 42, uh, verse five, it says, "Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, and spread out the earth, and what comes from it." He who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. So, we're completely dependent on God. Everything that we are, everything that we do, it's all given by God. God gives us our very breath, our very spirit. Um, But the obvious contrast is God, right? God doesn't need anybody to give him life, to give him breath. He simply is. And then let's look at Revelation chapter 4. And here we have a little section of praise. Verse 11, it says, Worthy are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created so here uh, glory and honor and power is being ascribed to God but why? I mean we often think of, of those things being ascribed to God because of his great works in history right? because of his work of redemption and his great power that we see in miracles that are performed and things like that. But what is what is the reason here in Revelation 4? He created everything. Yeah, just just the fact that, I mean, just, just the fact, but I mean, I, I, I don't know, at least may, maybe, maybe I'm strange, but at least for me, I often don't don't think about that. That is like, oh, well, just just creating everything. You know, yeah, he's done all sorts of amazing things throughout history, but just the fact that he spoke everything into existence, I mean, that's just, that's uh, a great reason to praise him. I, don't know, I guess it just, when I'm praising God, I just, I don't often think of, oh, praise God, you, you made everything. So, well, and I, and two, Chris, not to split hairs, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's just by your will, mm-hmm. they exist. so it's not just the act of creation, right. but just that it was 
his intent or his purpose because if he needs absolutely nothing then there's no reason that he needed to give us life and allow us to know him and and all these things so that's uh, yeah that is a, that is a very good point and that that again expresses his transcendence is like he's completely above needing any of creation um, but he simply willed that it would come into existence uh, and it did now what does that mean for us that God is the creator of us and is completely separate from us, distinct from us, that we have our very existence from him. What does that mean for us? Any thoughts? For one thing, Romans 9, Paul makes an argument in relation to this. Verses 19 through 21 he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump, the same lump one vessel for honor, for honorable use, and another for dishonorable use? Now, the particular topic under discussion in Romans 9 isn't really what I want to emphasize, but what what is Paul's argument here in relation to man's objection to what God does? It's where the creation, we have no we have no say over what purpose he's created us for. Yeah. Yeah, we need to understand that we are the creation of God and that we are completely subject to whatever he in his good and wise purposes decides um, and that should make us very humble um, and make us less likely to be like the imaginary objector of Romans 9 and to grumble against God because of the things that he does he is so far above us he has created us we have our very existence from him and even though a lot of times we are tempted to say, well, God, why are you doing this? Why are things this way? We need to understand that he is the transcendent creator of all things. And we should humbly accept whatever it is that he does. Any thoughts on that? Back in Isaiah, verse 53, sorry, chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. Familiar passage. God says, it's 55, verses 8 and 9. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, what we see here is that really the distinction is just, I mean, it's greater than we can really imagine. Um, The difference between who we are and who God is. Um, And that's going to limit our understanding of who God is. Uh, we talked about this some uh, last week, you know, just the, the incomprehensibility of God. That, I mean, yes, there's things that we know about God. Um, he has revealed those things. But he really is far above us um, and ultimately beyond our grasp. Now, one thing that you often see when people are talking about um, about who God is is um, people will often use analogies. Now, sometimes analogies can be helpful, uh, but sometimes analogies are very dangerous. And one thing that if we do discuss analogies, uh, one thing we need to keep in mind is that God is just completely different from us. His, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And he isn't like anything in creation. In some ways, you can say he's kind of like things in creation. 
um, but ultimately he's not like anything in creation. I know where this often comes up um, when we when we talk about the uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. This is definitely going to be something that we discuss. Um, the the doctrine of the Trinity is something that people often like to try to make analogies because in the doctrine of the Trinity, at its basic level, we have the fact that we have one God who exists in three persons. And that is very jarring to our experience of reality. And so many people have attempted to look at it and say, well, how can something be one and three? And they've attempted to pull all sorts of analogies from creation. And I hope I don't offend anybody, but I'm persuaded that all of those analogies are just wrong. You should never use an analogy to try to show how God is one and three because there's nothing in creation that is one and three in the same way that God is. Um, so we'll, we'll undoubtedly discuss more of that when we get to the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, but we, we, may, we may use some analogies as we go along if they're, if they're helpful, but there's, this is kind of like the warning. You know, and God being transcendent, being completely different from his creation, there's always dangers in trying to say God is like X in creation. So that's, a, that's something we need to be aware of. Any thoughts? Any questions? Well, I think along those lines, uh, God sometimes does use those analogies for mm-hmm. himself, that for us. Mm-hmm. But like you said, it's it's good to use the analogies that he uses. Right. But when we come up with them, oftentimes we can get right. in trouble. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah you, know, you know you're safe with the ones that, that, yeah. uh, that he uses. I mean... Um, I mean, it's debatable whether you could really call this analogy, but I mean, yeah. the 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 idea of you know the God is Father, you know that's that's something that we can relate to at least. Although it's and you might argue that it actually goes the other way that that fatherhood is a pattern of, of who God is. Yeah. But still, it's it's something we can use to um, try to understand who God is better when we consider what an earthly father is like. But even with that, we need to be careful. Even though it's like a biblically sanctioned analogy, we need to be careful because there are things that are, that are true about human fathers that just aren't true about God. So well, I was thinking about the illustration you used last week. Well, I think you used it. What about God and covers us with his wings as a mother hen? Well, you know, that that's to help us because mm-hmm. we understand that level of right. knowledge and how a mother hen protects her chicks. But... Mm-hmm. You know, that's we've got to be careful not to take that too far. Yes, so, yeah. that is true. That is true, yeah. And when we talk about God having physical form and stuff like that, we definitely yeah. don't want to say that you know, God has feathers or anything yeah, like that. Exactly. So, yes, that is true. Anything else? Any other thoughts on the topic of God being transcendent and the Creator? If not, we'll move on to another attribute. Alright. So God is eternal. Definitely a related topic. What does that mean? What does it mean that God is eternal? Forever, never ending. No beginning, no ending. Okay, yep. No beginning, no ending. That's a that is a good description. Um, Isaiah um, forty one verse four says, "Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He." And in Psalm ninety verse two, he says, "Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth or the world." From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So he's eternal. No beginning, no ending. Now how does that work? There's different ways that people view that. Has anybody given any thought to that? How is how is God eternal? Or how how does how does God maybe the better question is, how does God interact with time? God is eternal. 
we'll just go out and interact with them. Well, kind of like what I mentioned last week, he has no time constraints. He already was before, and he always was in the future. Mm-hmm. And now, right. he always was. Right. He's been there at all times. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he knew us from eternity past, and there was no beginning when he did not know us, which is mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling. To think that from eternity, you can't. We got we deal in time constraints. I mean, everything is, you know, we deal in physical constraints, time constraints. Everything we do is limited. Right. God has got no limit. Yeah, that is true. And, and I think we oftentimes don't think about the fact that time is a created thing. Uh-huh. And so because God is transcendent, he's beyond that, like Bill said. You mm-hmm. know, that, so he... You know, it's just like any other created thing. Right. God's not bound by that. Right. Yeah. So that is a good point to to emphasize that time is actually a part of God's creation. It's not like, you know, before He created the world, He was just sitting around for eons and eons. Like, eh, I'm bored. I'd like to create something. It's like, no, it's, um, time did not exist until God created. So, how do we experience time? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we, we deal with it every day, right? That clock just keeps ticking. Never slows down for us. For us, time is, we're in one point of time. Okay. One second, one day. Mm-hmm. And for God, time is, he, he's above time. He transcends time itself, mm-hmm. so... The past, the present, and the future are all not non-existent, pretty much for him. Kind of thing. He okay. exists in every single time. Mm-hmm. That is true. So the 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 past, the present, and future exist for us, though, right? But not in the same way, right? So how does it how does it exist for us? Well, like Tim said, we're just in one moment of that, mm-hmm. where God is in right. all of that right. at the same time, right? So. Yeah. So for us. Time is, it's a succession of events, right? So at any given moment, we're in the present. But, you know, we we move through time, you know, and then things become passed to us as we get past them. And things that are still farther than us are the future. But when we think about God's interaction with time, it's not like that. He's not experiencing time as a succession of events that he has to go through. Um, as as Tim said, he he sees it all laid out there in front of him. It's it's all uh, accessible to him um, at all times. Um, I know we haven't talked about the uh, omnipresence of God yet, but um, but I, people often make the analogy uh, between God's omnipresence and God's uh, eternality that God is everywhere present. He has access to every point in creation at all times. Whereas for us, it's like we're, we're very much just like, okay, I'm here, you're there, you're there. Um, but God has access to all of it simultaneously. Um, and that's at least similar, I think, to the way that, that God um, interacts with time. And I think another <clears throat> important point is the fact a lot of times we try to attribute things to Satan that ain't even Satan's. Because Satan is completely constrained in the same time we're constrained in. Right. Where God is not constrained. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that is true. Um, uh, Satan is not eternal, and he experiences presumably time basically the same way we do. I mean, he doesn't doesn't die after you know seventy or so years, but. You know, so he, he sticks around, but but he still is constrained in that same way. And I, you know, he's constrained in the same way in space. A lot of times people act like Satan's everywhere, you know. And it's like, well, look, yeah, I mean, he's got, he's got his, his demons, you know, that, that can be in all sorts of places, but um, but none of, the, none of the evil spirits can be everywhere. And the crazy thing is he's just as dependent on God as we are. Uh-huh. That is true. I mean, he cannot have his living and his being without mm-hmm. God, which is... Yeah. 
Yeah, if if uh, if God chose to, He could just cease to uphold the existence of Satan, and He would just be gone. So maybe more about that when we we get into the sovereignty of God. So our experience of time and God's experience of time is very different. Um, Psalm uh, 90 verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it just passed or as a watch in the night. So what do you think is meant by that? To God a thousand years is like a day. It's brief. Putting that with the concept of he is outside of time as well. It's, mm-hmm. it's a moment. It's a thought. It's not. Right. It's not anything significant right. Right. at all. Right. Yeah, I can say that our experience of time is just so different from God's. It's like to us, it's like a thousand years. That's. It's a long time. It's like none of us is, none of us lives anywhere near a thousand years. So a thousand years is is a very long time to us, but God is just like yeah. All time is just immediate access to it. So, what does it mean for us? What what should we? How should we react to the fact that God is eternal? That He's outside of time. He interacts with time in a completely different way than we do. It should definitely affect our the way we approach him in worship and in prayer, and uh, it it gives it gives a good perspective on uh, on the requests that we make to him, mm-hmm. the prayers that we pray to him. Uh, he already knows what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen, mm-hmm. and and also even though thousand years, a brief moment or a brief thought, he still doesn't care for mm-hmm. our little second, to right. our, our little moment right here and now. Right. Yeah, he doesn't, it's, looking at all of time all at once doesn't make it where he forgets all the little details of each individual moment. Oh, of each individual person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean yeah. It's, yeah. His, his understanding of all of that is infinite. Um, and his care for his people is infinite. Yeah, I think from from our perspective, I think oftentimes we have a temptation to live in the past or the future. Okay. We probably struggle to live in the present sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know, just knowing though that God is not bound by time or space ought to give us comfort in the present mm-hmm. to know that while we can't change the past mm-hmm. and we can't anticipate what the future holds right. we can live in the moment and dependence upon him because he is not bound by any right. of that and right. especially when you then begin to look at his other characteristics of his goodness and mm-hmm. you know graciousness and things like that uh, it gives us great comfort yeah for sure for sure it's interesting to think is that we often think of like prophecy as God predicting the future but in a sense God's never really predicted the future <laughs> because you know the, the idea of of like figuring out what happens beforehand um, but he knows everything in the future because he's laid it all out it laid is it's it's all according to his decree and so he knows everything that's that's going to happen from our perspective and so when he tells us this is the future um, He's just telling us what he knows. So yes, uh, the eternality of God is is a great comfort. Um, God will always be there, right? We don't ever have to worry that God is going to not be there next week. That he's going to somehow cease to exist or something like that. Um, a great comfort. Any thoughts or questions about that? Before we move on to the next attribute. We're going to get through a few today. Alright, so let's talk about the immutability of God. 
What does that mean? That's a that's actually a big word. That's a that's a word that you don't hear a whole lot unless you're talking theology um, or reading something really old. Um, what does that mean? The immutability of God. Can't change. Okay. It's the unchangeableness of God. Right. Can we be more specific? Does it mean that God can't act? His character is not shaped by actions or consequences of others, where okay. ours may be, mm-hmm. but his is never, right. never changed by what the right. So his character is never changed. His nature is never changed, right? Who he is is who he is. Um, that doesn't change. His purposes don't change. What he has purposed, he will bring to pass. But he can still act, right? We're not we're not saying that um, that God can't act. I mean, that's a, an objection some people will actually raise. It's like, well, if God doesn't change, how can He do anything? Um, and there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians who. Um, will have a view of God that he he does in fact change over time. Um, Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 he says for I the Lord do not change therefore you O children of Jacob are not consumed. That's a that's a comforting verse right? Um I mean, if God's purposes for his people are mercy, or grace, or salvation, and then we screw up, we sin, we offend God, and, well, maybe we might cause his purposes to change. That's not a pleasant thought. But since God doesn't change, then we can we can know um, that he uh, he is going to be merciful to us. The the promises that we have in Jesus Christ of forgiveness of sins are good for all eternity, no matter how badly we screw up. Hebrews chapter six, uh, verses seventeen and eighteen. Says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So there we see the the unchangeableness of God expressed and what's the what's the application that we have here in Hebrews? I'm It's uh chapter six verses seventeen and eighteen. Well that his promises are for sure we can count on those. Mm-hmm. Right. The uh, promise that he did with Abraham wasn't that the one where he walked walked between the two halves of animals and just like a torch, nothing else, and that meant that if I break this promise, you can do to me what you did to the animals. I don't remember if this is specifically referring to that. Because there's there's a few instances of God specifically making promises to Abraham, and I apologize, I don't remember off the top of my head. I, I don't know if Pastor Rick, do you do you know that off the top of your head? I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't I don't know specifically what he's referring to, but that is one of the promises. But yeah, but certainly it would it would apply to yeah. that. But Abraham never had to walk down walk do that because exactly. God knew he could keep it. right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so what you're referring to is the is when uh, God had Abraham sacrifice the animals and and 
split them in two, and Abraham fell into a sleep, and you see like a like a torch and a. I don't remember, but you see, you see something that basically represents the presence of God passing through the severed animals, and and it's basically the understanding that we have is that 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 was a that was a common practice for making covenants is you would cut an animal and you would pass through um, between the parts of the animal to basically say if I don't keep my promise if I don't keep my part of the covenant then may I be like these animals that are that are split in two and so um, here we have an example and what you're referring to of God making a promise and basically you know putting himself under that curse of if I don't fulfill my promise then may I be destroyed. Um, and obviously there's no danger of that, right? In verse 16, he says, people swear by something greater than themselves. Mm-hmm. And in all their disputes, the oath is final for confirmation. But then he goes on to when God did this, mm-hmm. he swore by his own character, right. which is also unable yeah. to lie. Right, so. yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's like, I mean, yeah, you you. You know, it's we, we talked about swearing oaths uh, in table talk here. I don't know if you a few months ago. You know, and there's the idea that it's like you know, yes, it's it's acceptable to swear an oath. You know, swear by God. Um, but you know, God can't he can't look up above him and say, oh, there's yeah, there's somebody above me. Um, there's nobody greater to swear by. So he swears by himself, by his own unchanging character. Um, as we go on to verse 19, it's uh, we the hope we have in him, and, and the fact that his unchangeable is is an anchor. It's I mm-hmm. mean we can we are to be assured by the fact that he is unchangeable. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Can you go ahead and read that? I did not put that in my notes. Uh, 19 is we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, what does what does an anchor do? I mean, it, it holds you in place. It holds you in place. It's a it's a it's a secure anchor. I mean, it's a holds you there. And that's that's the idea is that we're appealing to God's unchangeableness um, for our comfort, for our encouragement, because of the promises that He's made. Can um, can the immutability of God ever be a scary thing? If you're rebelling against God, <laughs> rebelling against God, yeah, a very scary thing. Well, how 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 should the unbeliever respond to the immutability of God, the unchangeableness of God. What is God's reaction to sin? Yeah. Separation from him. Yeah. Is God ever going to change his mind about that? No. The, all of the things that are to the unbeliever scary about God they're never going to change there's no hope that that God will suddenly just uh, I forgot about that person Uh, or uh, it's not a big deal Um, God's unchanging Um, his purposes his view towards sin will never change what's the name of the judge what's the name of the judge in James, chapter 1, verse 17, he says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So how's James using that? He's, again, he's expressing the unchangeableness of God. What's the application he's making? Well, God, God, could, God could be unchanging and evil and wicked. 
Mm-hmm. You know, but but he's saying here that that's not the character of our God. Mm-hmm. He is a benevolent God who gives good gifts, mm-hmm. you know, to his children. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that brings us, his unchangeableness brings us comfort mm-hmm. and encouragement. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think it also helps us to understand even, I mean, this is a little bit beyond what we're talking about, but even when there's trials and difficulties in our mm-hmm. life, to understand that those aren't with evil intent, right. and that God hasn't changed in some right. way, mm-hmm. as well. So, right, yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. It's when if things don't look good, it, it doesn't mean that God has suddenly changed from being this good God who gives good gifts to His children. Um, we're just we're just looking at it wrong because God doesn't change, um, even if we are undergoing various trials, as as James talks about um, earlier in the, in the chapter. It's such a contrast to the, the Greek and Roman gods mm-hmm. that isn't even removed. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Greek and Roman gods are, are quite fascinating in how how fickle and how how emotional they are and how they'll just I don't know. I don't, I don't meet very many people that are as irrational and apt to change their their minds and attitudes as the as the Greek and Roman gods. So, so yeah, I'm I'm sure that like the people in the in the Greek and, and Roman culture that were hearing about Jesus Christ and um, about the nature of God, I'm sure that it was just a pretty big contrast to everything they'd experienced before. So, that is a good point. Well, let's see if we can tackle a somewhat sticky topic here. Does God regret? Does God change his mind? I go back to some of the earlier attributes of our perspective is different from his perspective. Mm -hmm. And so from our perspective, it may look that way. Mm -hmm. But no, he does not. Yeah, well there's there's the quick answer. Just, just spoiled all the fun. <laughs> so, well, let's let's walk through it a little bit. But yeah, that's that is a good answer. Um, so Genesis six six. That's a that's a classic text in this uh, discussion. Um, this is um, this is right before the flood, um, and uh, and it says, and the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. So there we have a statement that that God regrets, um, and we have um, another um, another passage. Um, this is in First Samuel 15. Um, this is after Saul had sinned against him, King Saul, and he says, "I regret that I have made Saul king." Uh, this is I don't know if I said this but chapter 15 verse 11 he says I regret that I have made Saul king uh, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments and Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night Um, and then later in verse 35 of that same chapter it says and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death but Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel so that's I mean, that's pretty strong language, and it can be kind of difficult. Because it seems that God did something, and then is like, oh, yeah, kind of wish I hadn't done that. Is that, is that what's going on? Of course, where to get the answer, right? <laughs> One thing is I, I find absolutely fascinating with the, the, the first Samuel 15 passage is in the middle of that. I, I, I quoted verse 11 and verse 35. If you go to verse 29, it says, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that, sh- that he should have regret. So it's really fascinating <laughs> that in the same chapter you have just a very clear declaration that God doesn't regret. <laughs> But you also have statements that he doesn't regret in the uh, in that in that passage. Um, how do we make sense of that? 
in our perspective, it appears that there's a regret. Uh -huh. But like in in the situation of Saul, really the people chose Saul. Right. And God lets people have what they wanted. Mm -hmm. um, God chose the man that he really wanted as king, uh -huh. David, right. later on. Mm -hmm. So, to our perspective, it looked like a regret. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is, God still had his plan. Mm -hmm. And he took out of the hands from Saul uh -huh. the kingdom uh -huh. and gave it over to David, right. ultimately. Yeah. Over to yeah, so. yeah if, if God had wanted to, he could have just, you know, made David king first. But, and it's not like he didn't know what Saul was going to do. Um, it's like we, when we talked about God being eternal, and he's got, he's got it all laid out there. He knows exactly what's going to happen. But for his purposes, um, he wanted Saul to become king. Um, and, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's all sorts of purposes. He, I don't know that he necessarily lays out what they all are, but I'm I'm sure it was very character building for David to be chased around by Saul. <laughs> so um, I'm sure it had its good purposes. But the real question we have to wrestle with is why does the Bible say that God regretted? I mean, if we if we look at it and I think correctly and say, well, he didn't he didn't really regret. It was it was part of his purposes. Why does it use that language? That is more of a sorrow than a regret. Uh -huh. I think it's he realized that Saul wasn't the man uh -huh. that Israel needed. Right. And where I mean, maybe they use the word regret. But it's almost like a sorrow for because God does hate sin. Right. And, it, and God does. He's saddened uh -huh. by right. yeah. results of sin. I mean. Jesus wept when exactly. about Lazarus' death. I mean, mm -hmm. that was all in his plan, but mm -hmm. I mean, God does have feelings. Right, yes. Um, go back to what Mark said. That, um, it's like the difference between us and God is just, is just so great. It's like there's a limit to how much we can understand of who God is, of what he thinks, of what he feels. And... I think that this type of language is just to try to give us some sense of the sorrow God feels for the sin of mankind, for the rebellion of Saul, for the wickedness he saw before the flood. Um, and there's just a limit to how human language can convey that sorrow to us. And so just that's, that's the language that you had in, in Hebrew to try to convey that idea. But it's always balanced with other statements um, in the scripture that are just categorically, God doesn't actually regret. He doesn't, he doesn't repent of the things that he's done. Um, another passage in this respect is, is Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and, he, and will he not do it? Or sorry, I misread that. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Um, so, very clearly, there's a distinction made between uh, the way God is and the way men are. Men change their minds. Men make decisions and later regret it. Um, God is not like that. And so when we see the passages that speak of God regretting, we need to understand that it's, it's simply trying to express to us uh, God's sorrow over sin, and Jesus weeping, things like that, um, and not, you know, a contradiction or some kind of statement that, that God is changing his mind, that he's doing things and then saying, oh, that didn't work out the way I planned. Um, I, I shouldn't have done that. Okay. Would you say it's more like a disappointment? Like a uh, father being disappointed in like, mm -hmm. an action of yeah, I think I think that's a that's a good um, a good other word to use to express that idea. It's 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 trying to tell us something about God's emotional state towards sin, not about his um, his view of his decisions that he made. Does 
that, does that make sense? D don't you think uh, the challenge comes in, or where we oftentimes get in trouble, is that we are taking a human understanding of these words, mm -hmm. and we're just like you said earlier about father. Mm -hmm. We want to define God's fatherhood in right. light of us as fathers, mm -hmm. rather than defining our fatherhood in light of who God is. So when you talk about God being a jealous God mm -hmm. or God regretting, we take all of our baggage right. and our sin exactly. and, and pile it on those words and then attribute that to God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that is the problem. I know a lot of the discussions over the last century over the wrath of God have been the same type of thing, where it's like people have been very much. Some people have been very opposed to the idea of God being wrathful because they look at somebody who's just flying off the handle and say, oh, well, God's not like that. They're like, no, he's not like that. But that doesn't mean he isn't wrathful. He, he actually is. That's what scripture says. Um, but it's we need to, to separate that from our own human experience of that. So, yeah. And, I mean, in the end, it is basically just what Mark said. He just kind of summed it all up right at the, right at the beginning. There's, there is that that gap between what we can really understand about God um, and uh, that's going to, you know, that's going to limit our understanding of what we're seeing here, so. Alright. Um, so I think we better stop there, so. Alright, let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we just praise you for who you are. We praise you that you have created all things and that you are above it all and uh, you give life and breath to all things and indeed Lord you sustain all things in their existence and Lord we praise you that you are from everlasting to everlasting that you have no beginning no end and that um, everything is accessible to you whether past present or future and Lord we praise you that you don't change. You are not like man who thinks one thing one day and another thing another. Uh, Lord, your purposes are constant. Your nature is constant. And Lord, we can rely on you to the end. Lord, I just pray that we would continue to study who you are, to have a better understanding, to worship you aright. And uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would uh, be with us as we go into the service, that you would uh, be with Pastor Rick, as he delivers the word today, Lord, just that your word would stir our hearts, that we would be changed, that we would seek for you more, and um, Lord, that you would be glorified in all things. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.